Welcome to the New Beginning Fellowship Church Sermon Podcast. We are glad you are listening to the teaching of the Word of the Lord. We pray that this message encourages you and builds your faith. We also pray that this message is only supplemental to your spiritual growth instead of being a replacement for daily personal Bible study, the pastor you should be submitted to, or the church God would have you to be an active member of. If you live within driving distance of Brobridge, Louisiana, we hope that you would come to visit us during one of our services on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. Service times, ministry information, and giving options are all located on our website at newbeginningfc.com or on our Facebook page at New Beginning Fellowship Church. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you. I ask you to open your Bible with me to the book of Galatians chapter 4. The book of Galatians chapter 4 We're going to read this morning verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. There are two or three uh, hot-button topics, difficult things, even one or two statements that look like Paul could be saying something uh, very much in a way that he shouldn't be saying it. Confusing. What do you mean by that, Paul? It, It could be very confusing if we don't understand it. And so let's take our time and go through the Word of the Lord and become good Bereans of the Word of God. Let's search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. Amen? Oh, Lord have mercy. That's terrible. Amen. Praise God. Praise God's salvation doesn't depend on response. Amen. Call and answer. Praise the Lord. Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 through 11. Paul the Apostle says, Formerly, when you did not know God... You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless or beggarly elementary principles or elements of the world whose slaves you want to be once more, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I want to speak to you this morning about living as slaves to the elements instead of heirs. Living as slaves to the elements instead of heirs. This is the second part of the text that we started with a few weeks ago in verse 1 through 7, where he describes the law as a schoolmaster, a guardian, a tutor, which is responsible for that youth that is immature and ill-equipped and irresponsible, and it's guarding him to maturity, to manhood, to safeguard him from doing anything too foolish until he can reach the point that he can be fully recognized and as, a, as an autonomous adult member of his home, ready to act on behalf of his father for the good of his home. And so that's the point of the law. It was a slave master, a schoolmaster, typically a fellow slave who was given responsibility over the son of the father and was responsible to guard him till he was mature and ready to enter into the privileges and the status 
of adulthood. And in that way, the son was no better than a slave because a slave was over him, treating him like a slave. He didn't get the privilege. He didn't get to go, well, my daddy owns the house. No, you're a youngin. He put me over you. I'm going to humble you and break you. You're not going to grow up to be the brat that thinks you get everything because you're the boss's kid. The law was leading you until you were ready to come to Christ, the maturity of the gospel. Amen? And so that's the point of the first passage. And now we're getting to the second passage. The first passage deals with the Jews coming to the Messiah. And the law was this schoolmaster in a positive sense to lead them to Christ. But now we're dealing with Gentiles who didn't have the law. They have come to Christ apart from the law through the gospel And now he is saying, you are becoming enslaved to the very things that were slave masters that led people to Christ. Now you're becoming slaves to that in a negative way that's leading you away from Christ because you already got there. The gospel already got you there. The gospel already brought you to God. You didn't know him. Now you know him. But now you're embracing something that's over you, an authority that is not leading you to Christ. It is now a barrier between you and Him. And so we're talking about the danger of legalism. The danger of seeing your relationship with God through the means of, I have to do something for God to accept me. This is the danger. Amen? This is the danger. Is the law dangerous? The law is good. The law is wonderful. But if the law is used for a purpose, it was never intended. It becomes a negative thing. Amen? Right? So how many of you remember, how many of you are old enough to remember the old black and white cowboy movie? And there was a uh, cowboy and he had a gun and his uh, mama told the little boy that guns were bad and there were bad men who used guns. And the cowboy broke it down to his son and talked to him and said, son, a gun is not a bad thing. A gun is neither good nor bad. Men are good or bad. And the way that they use it is either good or bad. The law is actually a good thing that can be used in a bad way. In the same way that all of the Bible can be used in a bad way. If I use the Bible to abuse my wife or to oppress her or be unkind to her, I'm using a good thing in a bad way. Amen? And so in the same way, the law is not bad But Paul's point is that the way that the Pharisees, that these Judaizers are using the law is a bad thing, is a bad way to lead people away from the Lord they have already come to by grace. Amen? Hallelujah. Maybe that extra shot of espresso was too much this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and insight, and understanding, that we might come to your word, and know it, and understand it, and walk in its glory, and its truth. We thank you for the beauty, and the power, and the function of the law of God, and we thank you for the fulfillment of all of the righteousness of the law, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has perfected salvation, the one who has fulfilled all of the law on our behalf and who leads us by grace. And we ask you that you would guard and insulate our faith and our relationship with God, that nothing would come between us and you, that we would simply believe by grace 
we have been made children of the living God and of children and heirs. Let us walk in that status, in that privilege, in that blessing with nothing between us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Consider, if you will, this statement in verse 3. When he is speaking of specifically the Jews, he says, in the same way, we also, in the same way that he refers to the cultural reference of stewards and these uh, guardians and tutors that were over the children of the master, he says, in the same way, we also, we Jews, when we, Jews, were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And so we see this truth in verse 7. This is the conclusion. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And so he goes from the specific Jews to now Jews and Gentiles have been brought to sonship, and if we are sons, then we are heirs. We have the full status and privilege of being the children of God. We're his He's ours. The Spirit bears witness with us that we are His children, crying, Abba, Father, in our hearts. But then there's a particular circumstance that needs to be understood. What's happening to these Gentiles? What's going on with their Christian faith as they're trusting the Jewish Messiah? And Paul gets news that these non-Jewish people are believing in a Jewish Messiah but are having their faith compromised by being led back to the law. What does he say? Verse 8. Formerly, before I came to you and preached the gospel, formerly when you did not know God, you didn't know Him, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So the slave of verse 1 to 3, enslaved to the law, the law is your schoolmaster, you're nothing more than a slave, is that a positive slavery, positive uh, restraint in the sense that children are ignorant and foolish and they're going to get themselves hurt. And so to keep them from running onto the road, we spent a lot of money and my shoulders are still hurting all the way from April from digging fence posts, holes to put fences around the yard because my children do not understand the concept of don't run onto the road. And so I have to restrain them and put barriers up so they don't run into the road. And so God gave the law as a schoolmaster, a restrainer to keep them from doing anything to hurt themselves until the Messiah could come. Now, even with that barrier, how often did they hurt themselves? And so this is a slavery, a restraining, a controlling, a possession of them in a positive sense. But now we have a negative sense. You were enslaved to those that were not gods. Demons working through idols, spirits, trying to reveal themselves to men and contort the idea of who God is to get worship for themselves and rob worship from God. This is idols. This is what happens in idolatry. There are demons behind it. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians where he says, if you're eating at the table of an idol, you're eating at the table of devils. 
Idols are nothing. The wood, the the gold, the carving is nothing in itself. But behind it is a demonic spirit that is revealing itself and its nature and character to the worshiper so that it can get worship in the place of God. It wants to be worshipped. And so these spirits enslaved you. There was a spiritual power of darkness which controlled your mind and enslaved you to that foolish way of thinking. You were slaves to those that by nature are not gods. They didn't have His omnipotence. They didn't have His omniscience. They weren't eternal. They were created beings that fell. They were not gods. But you were enslaved to them. Verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you? How? How can you? How can you turn back again? to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. To understand what he means, let's look at verse 10. He said, you observe days and months and seasons and years. What in the world is Paul talking about? Okay, he's telling them the, the issue with these Gentile believers is he's gotten news. Read Acts 15, read the beginning of the letter, read all of Galatians, and you'll find that the problem is that Paul has gone through the southern region of Galatia, preached in all of these places. All of these people have come to Christ. He's returned to Antioch. He's resting. He's thinking everything's good at those churches. I'm taking a little sabbatical. I'm getting some rest. I almost got killed like 95 times. I deserve a break, right? I preach night and day. I just want a little bit of rest. Everything's okay. Those churches are good, and then he gets news, those churches are not good. As soon as you left, these Jewish people who claim to be believers, but Acts 15 tells us, and I think Galatians 2 tells us, that they were false brethren, came in and told these Gentile Christians, it's great that you believed in the Jewish Messiah, it's great that you've turned from idols, it's great that you've repented of sin, yada, 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 but you have not had true faith until you have been circumcised and you're keeping keeping certain principles of the law. And there are only three categories that were given of the law. This is why he tells them in Galatians chapter 5 that unless you keep the whole law, then you're not really keeping it. That you're obligated to keep all of it if you keep any of it. Because these uh, Jewish people are coming in and saying, well, you don't have to keep everything. But you have to keep these certain things. So you have to be circumcised. uh, You have to observe uh, calendar things. uh, And you need to not eat certain things. And so you need to abstain from non-kosher foods. And in these ways, you can be Jewish enough to be accepted by God. And he tells them that the danger of this is this. That they were once enslaved to demon powers... And through that, the elementary principles. And now, if they go back to those things, if they go to the Jewish law and those elementary principles, that they're becoming enslaved again. Notice the statement when he says uh, that how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles? Paul, are you making a qualitative equivalence between being under the law and being a pagan idol worshiper? That looks like a bad statement, doesn't it? How how can you say, the law was given by God. Idols were a corruption of everything that God wanted. How can you make an equivalence to them? 
He is not saying that in that straight-across-the-board sense that it is a a qualitative equal in the same way. This is the point. I don't don't want to lose you. This is the point. That when you were enslaved to those idols, you worshipped them through your rituals, your rites, and your practices, and those were the things that you had to do to be accepted by that idol. In India, they are much more devoted than most of us are. Pastor Blessing told me that certain of the idols that they worship in India, they have installed these idols in a cabinet in their house, and when they wake up in the morning, they have disciplined themselves to not open their eyes so that when they wake up, they keep their eyes closed, they stand up, they feel their way to the wall, open the cabinet, and open their eyes so that the first thing they see every day is their idol. That's their God. There was a foreign missionary, I can't remember which one, so I won't take a guess, but there was a foreign missionary, a woman, who saw a woman and her two sons walking to this pagan temple. She was in India, and she saw one of the children was handicapped physically and mentally, and the other was a healthy, strong child. And she saw them going to the temple, and then an hour or so later, she saw her coming back, weeping, crying, and all she had was the child that had the physical, mental handicap. And she asked the woman, why are you crying? Where's your other son? And she said, I offered him to the idol at the temple. And I, I won't go into the details of what that means in that culture, but use your imagination and however bad that is, multiply it. And they offered that child to the idol. The woman is weeping over the loss of her son. And she asked, just out of crude curiosity, trying to understand these people, why didn't you offer this one instead? What a morbid question, right? But I mean, you're already in a morbid situation. You're trying to understand their mindset. And she said, because my God deserves no less than my best. Enslaved to the ritual, the practice, the element Let's understand what it means when it says elementary principles before we end up thinking that Paul is making an equivalence between idolatry and the law. When the word is used for elementary principles in verse 3 and verse 9, it is stoikion, stoikion, the elementary principles, stoikion, of the world, cosmos. Elementary or elemental in the Greek is stoikion. I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but you don't know how to do it either. Always in the plural, it is ta stoikia. The basic parts, rudiments, elements, or components of something. It is the basic parts, rudiments, elements, or components of something. Among the ancient Greek philosophers, it designated the basic materials of which the physical universe was made the basic physical materials that the universe was made of. In first, in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10 and verse 12, the word carries this meaning. Listen to how this is translated. Same word, stoikion. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies, the stoikion, the elements, will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening 
waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the stoicheion, the heavenly bodies, will melt as they burn. The point is that the physical universe, the earth and the heavens, will be burned up. Everything will be consumed and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. But the basic physical matter of the universe won't be destroyed and and taken out of existence, but it will be renewed as by fire. And so all of creation will have this rebirth, all of the basic physical elements of the universe. And so that's what it means in this passage. It's basically physical matter, physical matter, the basic elements Figuratively, it refers to the elements or first principles of biblical doctrine. The elements or first principles of something, as in biblical doctrine. Hebrews 5 and 12 uses this word when it says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. The first things, the elements, not the whole structure. I'm not trying to get you to understand all of the overarching story of redemptive history. I just need you to understand the basic elements. As an example of this use of the basic elements of something or the rudimentary principles, we see it used in this way in Hebrews chapter 9. You can turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 9. Because he's using this of the law. So this is how this term is applied first to the law. And then we'll see how it also applies to the uh, pagan worship that the non-Jewish Gentiles were participating in in their idolatry. Hebrews 9, verse 6 through 24. We're going to look at a long passage. He says, These preparations, having thus been made the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. Verse 7. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. In other words, he's saying here's a here's a physical example of a spiritual reality, and he's going to use that language of this holy place that you're not allowed to go. God started off with this intimate relationship with mankind where they're in the garden, he's in the garden, we're in communion, there's no barriers between us, sin comes in, you're kicked out of the garden and you can't come close. And so even when God comes down on top of the mountain, he says, if you come near and you even touch the mountain, you're going to die. There's a barrier between us. Sin has separated you and us. And this temple was a physical representation of that spiritual separation. And he says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Verse 10, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Physical activities, using the elements, using natural things to teach spiritual things. He says, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, his body, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, right, the physical matter, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And let's skip down to verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary, listen to this, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so he's saying this physical place, this natural tent or temple that was made with a holy place and the most holy place, there's the near presence of God and then the very near presence of God. There's this inner proximity to the Lord, but there are these barriers that keep sinners out and the only people allowed in are people covered in blood, people who have had an innocent victim die on their behalf. That was a spiritual physical picture of a heavenly spiritual reality that Christ has gone into the very near presence of God and he has carried with him his own blood of the of his cross so that we get to come into his very near presence with no barrier and so the point is this this is the conclusion that the elementary or elemental principles, the stoichion, are the basic physical things which were used by God in the Old Testament to teach the Israelites the basic spiritual things of the gospel which have arrived through Christ under the New Testament. Right? Did you catch that? It is the basic physical things, physical matter, the elements the physical things which were used by God in the Old Testament to teach the Israelites the basic spiritual things of the gospel. The basic spiritual things of the gospel which have arrived through Christ under the New Testament. And so in that way, the Jews were enslaved to the elementary principles. The natural things of the world were used by God to lead them to Christ. And the Gentiles were enslaved to these natural principles, not in a positive way, but a negative way that didn't restrain them until they could get to Christ. It restrained them from getting to Christ in that all they could see was the physical things, the rites and the practices, and they were blinded by the devil. 
And now he says, you, through the gospel, have come to God. Right? You skipped over that whole necessary of the law, necessity of the law thing. Right? You didn't have to have 1,500 years to show you you were a terrible sinner. You didn't need the reflection of the law to show you that. Christ came, died in your place. The Word of God was preached to you. Righteousness was preached to you. The Holy Spirit came in, pricked your heart, showed you that you were a wicked sinner, and you believed the gospel and were saved. And you came immediately to Christ. No barrier. Right? No, I come to you and I get to be on one side of the wall and you get to be on the other side of the wall and I get to whisper things to you and hope that you hear it. If you don't think that that's the relationship they had under the law with God, you don't know how they're even practicing today. They still go to the wailing wall in Jerusalem, going to this wall, this special place to go and pray. I tell you, I've got a temple right here. Right here. Amen? The Holy Ghost lives in me. This heavenly place has been brought into my heart. I don't have to even ascend to heaven to get to this temple. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? That God has taken up His residence in you? And through faith in the gospel, you have become the habitation of God. And you have viewed your relationship up to this point as simply, I have faith in Christ. Christ receives me, and there is open fellowship. And now someone else has come in and said, unless you do these things, you are not accepted by God. And you have gone from being enslaved in a negative way to the elementary principles of the world under your idolatry to God through the gospel. And now someone has deterred your faith from the gospel and said, unless you do these things, God won't accept you. And you have turned back again to the same things that Christ delivered you from. Now, for a different purpose, right? The Jews, God used these elements to bring them to God. God used the physical things to bring them to God. But now that you've been brought to God, this is a betrayal Amen? If, if I put up with a year of engagement to my wife, worst year of my life, an awful, terrible time, and we are now engaged, we are married, and then my wife goes back to living like we're just engaged, we got a problem. You are not really accepting the fact that we are covenantally joined together in our relationship, and now you're acting like we're not. And he says, the law simply betrothed the Jews to Christ, but it didn't get you to him. But now you've been married to him, and now you're going back to the former covenant relationship. And so he says, verse 9, let's read through it again, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again? Going back to the elements, to the natural things of the world, to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. How can the law be weak and worthless? How can the law be weak and worthless? Because the law has no power to save you. Amen? The law, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sent His Son. Right? It wasn't that the law was weak on its own. It required your strength. Amen? The law required you to be strong. It had no power to save you. It demanded strength from you to obey. And you were weak. 
And so the law is not strong to save you. The law was strong as a standard of God, which Christ completed in his strength. But he says it is weak, it's without strength to save you, and also worthless. How is it worthless? It is worthless in the same way that it is gloryless now. Gloryless. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. Now, if the ministry of death, the law, that's Paul referring to, go read the first few verses of that chapter, and he's talking about the law, because what does the law promise? If you don't do all that is written in the book of the law, you'll be cursed. You'll die. Don't do it and you'll die. And so he says, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was brought to an end because he died, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Amen? If I have already come into a covenant relationship with my wife, the relationship, the covenant agreement of engagement was useful for a time. It was valued. It was precious. It was good. It promised relationship. But now that I've entered into covenant relationship and she is my wife, if we go back to living like we're just engaged, there's no value in that. Where is the relationship? Where is the love? Where is the intimacy? Where is the openness? Where is the responsibility of that relationship? It's gone. There's no benefit to that. In the same way that it was, the law was once glorious, but in comparison to the new covenant, it's not glorious. The law had a glory to it. The law had a value to it, but that, that value is past. That value is past. And so he says it is weak and it is beggarly. It is poor. The elements of the world whose slaves you want to be, you want to be once more. They're telling you have to do this, and you're going, okay, we'll accept that. And he says, you are going into a form of bondage. You skipped over the whole being enslaved to the law, 1,500 years Israelite bondage thing. You came to Christ, and now you're going to the law, and it's leading you away from the Lord. Can I tell you, this is always the temptation, and it takes form in so many different ways. This is, this is what Jesus constantly condemned, that the Pharisees and the Jews of his day believed that they were right with God because they did all the rites and the rituals and, and all of the obligatory things. And he says, this people draws near to me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. You're tempted to turn to the ritual and the act, but not with the heart. And then we see the Gentiles trusting in the law for salvation and not Christ here in Galatians. But what have we seen in the church over the last 2,000 years? Come to Christ, you believe Christ, you trust Christ, and then all of a sudden, statements like salvation is in the church begin to develop. Salvation is in the sacraments. Salvation is in the Eucharist. Salvation is in penance. Salvation is in prayers. Salvation is in buying your indulgences. You need the natural things. Then what happens? Well, we need to have all of these relics in the church. We've got to have the toe bone of Peter. Oh, what a holy sight this is. 
the toe bone of Peter, right? We've got this, this idol. We don't want to call it an idol because they wouldn't call it an idol. We have this image of a saint. We're going to pray to this saint. We're going to adore this. We're not going to worship it. It's not worship. We're not idol worshiping. We're going to adore the saint that God has used. And we're going to use that. And we're going to pray to dead saints, asking them to intercede on our behalf. Have you been brought to Christ? Then why turn to another element? Why turn to a lower thing? Why turn to something else? Because men are always tempted to turn to something else. Men are always tempted. We are always eating. If we're in the flesh, we are always eating from one side of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the other. We're either autonomously self-righteous, independent of God, going, I'll be good apart from God, and I'll turn to law and legalism, and I'll use the law of Moses, or I'll use the law of my church, or the law of my culture, but I will use some form of legalism to make myself acceptable to God. Or I will live in lawlessness and pretend that grace covers it all, and I can live however I want, and everything's okay. That's the two sides of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or you can chop that tree down at the roots and come to the tree of life and eat freely and get righteousness that you didn't earn but is worked in your heart by the grace of God. And he says, you are turning back again to the elemental principles of the world. You're turning back. And it's just like going back to idolatry. It's just like going back. You're enslaved to something other than Christ when you have been made an heir. And I tell you, we are in danger every hour. We are in danger every hour. How often are we tempted to trust in ourselves that we are righteous? Isn't that what Jesus said about the Pharisee? The sinner came and he beat his breast before the Lord and he said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm not righteous. I have no right to believe that you will save me. He says, that man went down to his house justified because he didn't believe in himself. But the Pharisee, I thank God that I'm not a Gentile. I thank God I'm not a sinner. I thank God I'm not like this man, but I tithe and I give and I'm religious and I do all of these things. But this man trusted in himself that he was righteous. The law was never intended to teach you that you were righteous. You're using the law in a way it was never intended to be used. If you're really using the law the way that it should, it should lead you to Christ so that you would run to Him as a city of refuge going, I am the manslayer. I am guilty of blood and I deserve to be judged. And I'm not running to the law so God will accept me. I'm running to Christ so that Christ, so that God will accept me. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years, the elemental things of the world, food, circumcision, calendar days. Can I tell you, these things can still be useful. I've even struggled with this thought. Wouldn't it be helpful if we understood some of the things in the Old Testament? I know Christians who are not under the law. They're not obligated. They don't feel that they have to do these things to be accepted by God. But every once in a while, they'll, they'll keep the Jewish calendar year for the sake of learning the Old Testament illustrations and pictures and see the gospel in Christ encapsulated in those things. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? I mean, the, the, the usefulness of that, my favorite illustration, is Passover, right? They're in Egypt. They're in bondage. They are incapable of escaping, and Pharaoh hates them and wants to kill them, and they kill the lamb. 
and they put the blood on the doorpost and on the lentils and they go in and as they're eating the lamb, he tells them, you make sure your shoes are on your feet, you're in your clothes, your bags are packed, your staff's in your hand in this way that you are actively participating in faith in the sacrifice that through the sacrifice I am delivered. I'm not waiting for the morning to see if something happens. I believe that through the lamb I'm free and I'm never coming back here again. What a picture that would be for us that if we would trust the cross in that way, that if I feel that I'm in bondage to some sort of sin or guilt or shame or something that would restrain me from living free in Christ, that I would come to the cross in the grace of Jesus and say, I believe that as I receive him and trust him, I'm free. I am absolutely free. I'm walking out. I'm leaving. I will never be here again. Free from condemnation. Free from shame. Free from my past. No more worry. Somebody's going to find out what I did. No more worry that I'm going to go back to that like a dog returning to his vomit. I'm free. What a useful thing that that would be. And then the temptation is, well, there are so many people who are doing this now that really have become to trust in that thing more than Christ. If you listen to the way some of the people in the Hebraic Roots movement talk who are trying to do those things, you find they really are trusting in that more than they are Christ. And you go, it could be a useful thing, just like communion can be a useful thing. But I wonder how many of you were raised Catholic and you still struggle with not viewing the, the communion as something that merits your salvation. I wonder. I don't know. Here's the point. If it is your servant and it leads you to Christ, if it's a good thing, if, if taking part in Passover or Purim or Feast of Tabernacles is your servant that's helping you understand Christ through the Old Testament, it's good. If, if uh, the, the Eucharist or the communion is your servant to lead you to Christ and instruct your faith and you're running to Him and not trusting in it, if baptism is that for you and it helps, praise God, we're all supposed to be baptized. If foot washing, whatever physical practice we do in the church, if it's your servant, it's good. But if you become its servant where you're not right with God unless you're doing that, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. And so what does he say, verse 11? And we'll get into the weeds here and then we'll move on. He says, I am afraid. I'm afraid. My heart knows the terror of a father who is concerned about his children. I'm afraid. I am worried. I'm concerned. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I'm afraid. How can he say that? In vain? You said that they know God, or rather they are known by God. But your work, your labor, your preaching the gospel, your ministry to them, you're worried that it's to no effect, that it was a vain attempt. Oh, how we could get into so many soteriologies and debates and arguments. Does this mean that he's worried they're going to lose their salvation and not be saved anymore and they're going to go back to that? Does he worry that it just means that so much of what he poured into them is just going to be lost and they're still saved because they were truly saved, but now their relationship is lost? That's not told to us in the passage. You can have your debate. You can argue over it. But here's the point. Here's what I know. There are promises that God not only saves, but he's able to keep. And there are threats 
that those who are not living in continual faith and continual repentance have no reason to believe that they're saved. Can you lose it, not lose it? We'll debate another day. But I can tell you this, if I see you turning to legalism, if I see you turning to your own works of righteousness and trusting in it, I am afraid for you. I am fearful for you. I am worried about you because it will inevitably lead you away from Jesus. This is the danger. This is the danger. Is your only trust in Jesus? Is your only trust the grace of God? Is your only trust that God is able to save? Isn't that what Jonah declared? Salvation is of the Lord. It's of the Lord. It's not of man. It's nothing that I can do. It's something that God does in me and through me and on my behalf. But be wary. Be concerned. Keep the faith. Make sure that your faith is pure. And so I say to you, we must be careful. We must be careful. Because this is the danger that Paul tells us about in chapter 1, where he says in verse 6 and 7, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, another gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Can you imagine with these three simple things? He says, you believed the gospel and now you're believing something that is not the gospel. It's distorted and this little distortion makes the gospel no longer the gospel. You believe that you need to be circumcised. You believe that you need to keep these minimal feast days. And you believe that you need to abstain from eating certain things. And just these things, your faith believing that if I don't do those, I'm not saved and I don't really know the Lord, turns the gospel into not a gospel at all. And it's dangerous. This is how sensitive the gospel is. Amen? This is how sensitive it is. It is so important. These elements, these these small details matter. The gospel must be the pure gospel or it's no gospel at all. Amen? Is that your faith? Is that your concern? That your trust is Jesus and the cross and nothing else? Or is it in yourself? You are either living as an heir by grace or you're living as a slave to something else. I pray that you're living as an heir. Amen? Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. This gospel that is omnipotent. It can save to the uttermost. It knows no sin that it cannot conquer. It knows no unbelief which it cannot turn. It knows no grossness of conscience or heart or nature which it cannot cleanse. It can save to the uttermost. And we ask you that we would trust it in nothing else.
Lord, that we would lean on it and nothing else. Lord, I ask you that there would be a concern in the heart of every child of God that they would believe nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That they would trust that the same blood that sanctifies them, that saves them, sanctifies them. That they will believe that the same grace that saves them will keep them saved. That they would believe the same grace that has brought them to God will keep them in God. And we ask you, Lord, that you would do it in our hearts. And we trust you for it. We love you in Jesus' mighty name. Can you give the Lord some praise this morning?